mest af. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken... The title of fifth Golden Girl could be held by a few different people. Some say it's Susan Harris, the show's creator, who established the character's voices right from its killer pilot. In their memoirs, both Rue McClanahan and Betty White suggest it was Terry Hughes, the director who clicked with the actors and writers and helmed the show through its classic period. But for viewers at home, the fifth Golden Girl wasn't a girl at all. It was Stan Zbornak, Dorothy's ex-husband for whom the word guts seemed personally created for. Like the character himself, Stan wasn't meant to be around long on the show, but ended up sticking around the entire time. Today, we're going to talk about old Stan and his connections to the sports world, and of course, Herb Edelman, the actor who brought him to life. We'll start with The Stan Who Came to Dinner, which premiered on January 10th, 1987, the 13th episode of the show's second season. It was written by Kathy Spear and Terry Grossman and directed by Terry Hughes. By now, it's been well established that Stan is an unwelcome guest in the girls' home, and he turns up just as Blanche and Dorothy are getting ready to go out with twins Rob and Bob. But Stan has a good reason for coming by. He's having bypass surgery, and he needs Dorothy to sign some papers. He's also scared shitless and is afraid he's going to die. In a twist no one saw coming, especially Stan, Sophia insists he do his recovery at the girl's house. Before the surgery, Stan is really scared and wants to get some things off his chest to Dorothy. Considering all of the affairs he finally cops to after all these years, it's amazing he was even alive to get the surgery. Dorothy, please. Oh, all right, all right, you're off the hook, Stanley. You can go to the hospital with a clean conscience, I forgive you. Dorothy, you've got the compassion of a priest. You really do. But you'd have to be the entire Vatican softball team to forgive me for the other time. <laughs> the other time. I didn't mean it to happen. I was having a drink in the bar that they added onto that Greek diner when a woman sat down next to me. We talked, we drank, we broke a few dishes. The next thing I knew, I came to in a motel with my toupee in my mouth. <laughs> But Dorothy forgives him and lets him go under the knife with a clean conscience. But two months after the surgery, Stan has turned the girls' lives completely upside down. Poor Sophia can't even watch a simple wrestling match on TV without him bothering her. You call that wrestling, you pansy? If you can't take a crutch slam like a man, get out of the business. <laughs> this is great, just great. You and me watching television together. <laughs> hey, you know, there's a great basketball game on 7. I said it was all right for you to come out of your room. I didn't say it was all right for you to talk to me. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of an expert in basketball. I mean, it's one of the interesting things about me. Please, you've lived here for two months. There's nothing interesting about you. <laughs> no. I mean it. Ask me anything. All right. When the hell are you moving out? <laughs> After he breaks Rose's Scandinavian wedding plate and ruins Blanche's relationship with Big Spender Rob, the only person who isn't ready to kill him is Dorothy, who waits on him hand and foot. When he relapses, it seems Stan will be around even longer. That's when Dorothy leaves him to rest, but comes back into the room and catches him doing some physical therapy while pantomiming a basketball game. 
Dorothy, I, I know this sounds insane, but I thought that a little physical activity would help me snap this setback. I was wrong. You were right. I should just rest. C could you help me get back into bed? Stanley, how could you fake a relapse? I mean, do I deserve this? And with that, the jig is up. Stan admits to faking his relapse because he was scared, and Dorothy gives him the boot, hoping he'll finally learn to live by himself. But we know that won't ever happen. Stan's Born Act was introduced in Season 1 episode, Guess Who's Coming to the Wedding, written by Winifred Hervey and directed by Paul Bogart. The episode was filmed fourth, but was moved up in the lineup, becoming the second Golden Girls episode ever aired. In hindsight, it was the right call. The episode established Stan as a straight-up louse, and we see how dumping Dorothy for a stewardess, moving to Maui, and coming back talking like Jeff Spicoli in a toupee drives her absolutely bonkers. There's not a lot of story in that episode, but it doesn't matter because it all ends in Dorothy delivering a blistering speech in which she lets out 38 years of anger. Also, keep an eye out for the camera that sneaks into the corner of the frame while she stands behind him on the lanai. When writing the pilot, Susan Harris borrowed the last name of her assistant, Kent Zbornak, and gave it to the characters Dorothy and her ex-husband Stan. The name fits the two of them so perfectly, even though the actual Kent Zbornak served as the stage manager on The Golden Girls and continues his busy Hollywood career as a producer today. According to writer Kathy Spear, Stan wasn't expected to be a recurring character. Her writing partner Terry Grossman said that once Stan and Herb Edelman were in The Golden Girls' world, he quickly became a go-to font for jokes. Quote, Kathy and I just worried that maybe we found him funnier than the rest of the world did the way he played the lovable schlub, because when he would play Stan, we would be crying with laughter. End quote. A later Stan episode had an even more upfront sports theme. Bang the Drum Stanley premiered on November 12, 1988, the fifth episode of the show's fourth season. It was written by Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss. Stan appears one day out of the blue and invites Dorothy and Sophia to a baseball game. And his reasons for doing so are... Kind of sad. Wait, Dorothy, I was thinking about us. Good old days, back in Brooklyn. Ebbets Field. <laughs> Remember those warm summer nights, sitting in the bleachers, eating hot dogs, rooting for the Dodgers, and kissing passionately between innings? Stanley, you never took me to Ebbets Field. <laughs> no? No! <laughs> oh. It must have been one of the guys from work. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I've heard enough. Please, Dorothy, you'll have the time of your life. The time of my life? Stan, the last time you said that, it took 12 seconds. <laughs> and I ended up three months pregnant at my own wedding. Look, I'll level with you. I got three tickets to today's ball game, and I can't find anyone to go with me. Guess I don't have many friends. Oh, who are you kidding? You don't have any friends. <laughs> ah. I'll go with you, Stan. Ma, you will? I'll be waiting in the car, Stanley. Dorothy? I can't think of anything in the world I would rather do less. Really? Would you like to go to bed with me? Take me out to the ball game, Stanley. <laughs> the seats, of course, suck, and they're way up in the nosebleeds. That's where Stan reveals his true motivations. 
Uh, uh, you want a hot dog, uh, Dave? No, thanks. Uh, how about a sun visor? No. You want a nice uh, cushion for your chair? How about cutting the crap, Stanley? Why are we here, and what is it you want from me? Okay, I was going to wait until after we sang Take Me Out to the Ball Game, but I'll level with you now. I'm having a little business problem. What's the problem? I'm bankrupt. <laughs> Dorothy, I, I just need a few bucks until the end of the month. Oh, come on, Ma. We're leaving. Wait, i got to see at least one man bat. What? I got it! I got it! I got it! Ma, you all right? Fine, fine. Only next time, Salvador, either we start lower on the bed or remove the headboard. <laughs> After getting beamed in the head by a long fly ball, Sophia goes straight to the hospital, but she quickly returns home. When Stan pops by, he makes her an offer. If she acts severely injured, they can sue the team and squeeze them for a few hundred grand. He even gets a doctor friend of his, who may be a degenerate gambler, to give Sophia a sham diagnosis. The two continue the charade for a while, escalating to the point where Sophia is watching baseball games while shuffling back and forth to a motorized wheelchair. At a doctor's appointment that could secure them the money, Sophia meets a sick little boy who needs a new wheelchair himself, and she has a change of heart. Turns out the kid was just an actor, part of the production of Cats that Blanche and Rose were taking part in. And they all end up right where they started, waiting for the next harebrained get-rich-quick scheme to come along. Bang the Drum Stanley shares a lot of DNA with a couple of other classic sports tales. The title is a play on Bang the Drum Slowly, the 1956 book by Mark Harris that has been adapted into two movies, one the same year of its release starring Paul Newman, and one in 1973 starring Robert De Niro and Michael Moriarty. Each is the story of intellectual pitcher Henry Wiggin and his friendship with catcher Bruce Pearson, who at first is ridiculed by his teammates for his backwoods ways, but later becomes a rallying point and inspiration after he's diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. The second adaptation, which was released the same year as Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, was a big boost for De Niro's career and won him the Best Supporting Actor Award from the New York Film Critics Circle. The plot of Bang the Drum Stanley closely follows another classic sports but not sports movie in Billy Wilder's The Fortune Cookie. Released in 1966, the movie was the first of many collaborations between Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, who play brothers-in-law on opposite sides of the moral fence. Lemmon plays Harry Hinkle, an NFL cameraman who gets leveled by Brown's running back Boom Boom Jackson during a game. Matthau plays greasy lawyer Whiplash Willie Gingrich, who convinces Harry to milk the injury for all it's worth so they can profit off of it. Many hijinks follow until, in the end, every man Lemon can't stand the lying anymore. The movie's a shade too long for a comedy, but it's also one of Wilder's many classics. Matthau won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Willie, and the fact that it led to a lifetime of Matthau and Lemon movies alone makes it an important film. Of course, their most famous work together was probably Gene Sachs' movie adaptation of Neil Simon's The Odd Couple, which co-starred one Herb Edelman as Felix and Oscar's poker buddy, Murray the Cop. Nope, Stan's Bornack wasn't Herb Edelman's first lovable schlub. Not even close. In fact, you can say he made a career out of playing schlubs of many colors. Herbert Edelman was born on November 6, 1933 in Brooklyn, New York, the place that would be closely associated with a lot of the characters he would later play. But acting wasn't his first goal. His original major in college was agriculture, 
and he harbored hopes of becoming a farmer. Not the kind of thing you expect from a guy from Coney Island. But after a semester and change at Cornell's School of Agriculture, he dropped out and joined the Army, where he spent some time on Armed Forces Radio. When he returned home, Edelman enrolled at Brooklyn College to study theater. He dropped out of the school at some point, but got a role in the touring company of Three Penny Opera in 1961, where he played the part of Walt Dreary. He made his Broadway debut two years later in Lorenzo, which was directed by Arthur Penn. That job didn't last long, and in need of an actual paycheck, Edelman started driving a cab. It was in a taxi, so the story goes, that he met director Mike Nichols, who cast him as the comical telephone repairman in Neil Simon's Barefoot in the Park. This would be the first step in a long and successful association between Edelman and Simon, whose plays were sort of a proto-Seinfeld, set in a very real New York, but packed with quirky goofballs that are like exaggerated versions of people you feel you might actually know. The star of Nichols' version of Barefoot was a young Robert Redford, and he and Edelman would reprise their roles in the 1967 film version, with Jane Fonda added to the cast as well. Here's Edelman with Matthau from the film version of The Odd Cup, in which he replaced the Broadway run's Nathaniel Fry in the role of Murray. I'm in for a quarter. Okay. Aren't you going to look at your cards first? What for? I'm going to bluff anyway. Who gets a Pepsi? I get a Pepsi. My friend Murray, the policeman, gets a warm Pepsi. You still didn't fix the refrigerator. It's been two weeks now. No wonder it stinks in here. Temper, temper. If I wanted nagging, I'd go back with my wife. I'm out. Who wants food? What do you got? I got uh, brown sandwiches and uh, green sandwiches. Which one do you want? What's the green? It's either very new cheese or very old meat. I'll take the brown. Are you crazy? You're not going to eat that, are you? I'm hungry. Curiously, he didn't play Murray in the TV version of The Odd Couple, where he was embodied by Happy Day's Al Molinaro. Edelman would later return to the world of Neil Simon in the film version of California Suite, directed by Herbert Ross. Strikingly tall at six foot five and hilariously bald from a premature age, Edelman found his niche as a New York schlub, and it wasn't long before TV came calling. He had guest starring parts on Honey West, The Girl from Uncle, and Occasional Wife, and he had a starring role in the CBS sitcom The Good Guys starting in 1968. Paired with Bob Denver as a couple of sweet, lifelong friends who are always trying to get rich quick, Edelman made an impression as diner owner Bert Grammis. The show lasted just two seasons but it still pops up on a few gone-before-their-time lists. Throughout the 70s, he did guest spots on every show on TV. Bewitched, Banachek, The Partridge Family, Maud, Barney Miller, Happy Days, you name it. A few of the movies he did were In Like Flint, I Love You Alice B. Toklas, The Way We Were, The Front Page, and Jerry Lewis is Cracking Up. In the late 70s, he got another starring role on a Saturday morning kids show called Big John, Little John in which he played a science teacher who drinks from the fountain of youth and finds himself de-aging to 25, 19, and 12 at the most inopportune time. Playing 12-year-old Little John was Robbie Rist, known mostly then as Cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch. If you're a parent now and your kid watches Disney Junior's Doc McStuffins, you know Robbie Rist better as the voice of Stuffy the Dragon. Big John Little John only lasted 13 episodes. So it was back to cameos. Chips, Kojak, Welcome Back, Cotter, The Love Boat, again, you name it. Edelman did get a few recurring roles on sitcoms The Ladies' Man, about a guy who gets a job writing for a women's-focused magazine, and in the TV adaptation of the film 9 to 5. 
In a literally dramatic departure from his usual comedic TV work, he played a police commissioner on Strike Force, a cop show starring Robert Stack and Dorian Harewood. In 1985, he became a former novelty salesman and toupee enthusiast Stanley's Bornack for the first time. Kathy Spear remembers Carl Reiner's name being thrown around for the part, but no offer was ever made to the legendary actor-slash-writer-slash-director. Golden Girls writer-slash-producer Barry Finero remembers a number of actors vying for the part of Stan, but Edelman immediately stood out above them all, and not just because of his height. Quote, I'm sure there were ten guys who came in to read, but Herb came in and was brilliant, and he was tall to play against B. Kathy and Terry loved him, and we loved him. He came in and instantly... He was Stan, end quote. Because Stan would have to have a close relationship with Dorothy, B. Arthur's opinion was asked during the casting process. Having known Edelman previously, she was happy to work with him again, later saying, quote, Herb Edelman was lovely and a wonderful, funny, funny actor. I loved the relationship between Dorothy and Stan. It was just as bizarre as Dorothy's relationship with Sophia, which made great grounds for comedy, end quote. No doubt that part of the appeal for Arthur was that Dorothy could hate Stan so much and still clearly love him enough to occasionally sleep with him or even entertain the idea of getting back together with him full-time. Producer Paul Witt pretty much nailed what made Edelman such an effective Stan. Quote, He had a kind of forgivable quality. He was such a schlub that you couldn't help but love him. You certainly couldn't hate him, no matter how abhorrent or over-the-top his behavior. End quote. Stan made 25 appearances on the Golden Girls' 180 episodes, making him by far the show's most frequent guest star. Edelman garnered two Emmy nominations for the role, and Stan also made it onto an episode of The Golden Palace. He's also as indelible a part of the show's world as St. Olaf or Bamboo Purse is. While on The Golden Girls, Edelman also appeared on multiple episodes of a few other major shows. On St. Elsewhere, he was union mediator Richard Clarendon for 17 episodes. On Knott's Landing, he was Sergeant Levine for five episodes. And on Murder, She Wrote, he was NYPD Lieutenant Artie Gelber for 10 episodes. On the personal side, Edelman was also a sculptor and painter and was fluent in a number of languages, including Japanese, French, Spanish, Italian, Yiddish, German, and Russian. He was married twice and had two children. Towards the end of his life, he was partners with English actress Christina Pickles, whom you may remember as the sorceress from the live-action Masters of the Universe movie. His final role was on an episode of crime show Burke's Law in 1995. In July of 1996, Herb Edelman passed away at the age of 62 due to emphysema. He was rarely the lead in any project, but he was the consummate character actor, making his short time on screen or on stage count by cutting memorable figures. Whether they were goofballs, authorities, or just plain funny, Herb Edelman made them awesome, babe. Simply awesome. Stan's Bornack wasn't just a louse and a cheater and a liar and a doofus. He was also a cheapskate. Once on the Golden Girls did his frugality have a tangential connection to sports. And with no better place to put it than here, let's take a look. In... Have Yourself a Very Little Christmas, a season five holiday episode written by Tom Whedon, Stan drops by the house to give Dorothy a very thoughtful gift. Or at least what his twisted mind thinks is a thoughtful gift. 
It's me, Stan. I brought you a gift. Oh, why, thank you, Stanley. Oh, and look, there's a little card. Merry Christmas, Sports Illustrated subscriber. <clears throat> you don't have a baseball radio, do you, Dorothy? Stanley, why are you really here? I am going to make all you women wealthy. How come whenever my ship comes in, it's leaking? <clears throat> Stan's really there to ask for money for another ridiculous business plan. Later in the episode, the girls do some volunteer work at a soup kitchen, and among the homeless and needy coming to the church for a hot meal is one ragged-looking Santa Claus. It's Stan, who's more down on his luck than Dorothy realized. We talked about this episode in episode one of our second season, so check back there for another sports joke regarding Jim Thorpe. Sports Illustrated Magazine was born in 1954, the brainchild of Time Magazine creator Henry Luce, but not because he was a sports fan. Luce wanted to branch out to different arenas and sports, while seen as a pastime of the blue-collar masses, were also catering to the white-collar jacket-and-tie crowd. At first, the weekly magazine covered both popular and esoteric games and struggled to sell, almost proving many of Luce's doubters correct. But the addition of managing editor Andre Laguerre, who brought with him a European sensibility, a natural eye for writing talent, and a vision of what Sports Illustrated could be, led the magazine to prominence. By combining writers that could describe the majesty and drama of sports with spectacular color photos and refocusing on big-time television sports, Laguerre made SI an institution throughout the 60s and 70s. As the magazine gained in legitimacy, so did sports itself. Over time, the public came to see pro-athletics as a business and having a serious cultural impact, as opposed to being something the guys at work did on Saturday afternoons or kids played in dirt lots. Getting on the cover of SI became a huge deal and could make someone a superstar recognized anywhere in the world far beyond the circle of their chosen competition. That status still exists today, although to a lesser extent. Sports coverage is a completely different animal now than it was when SI was taking off. Waiting a week to get your sports news these days is like waiting an eternity. A million things could happen in those seven days. Even before the internet cost them some business, SI offered new subscribers goofy gifts like baseball-shaped radios or football-shaped phones in order to keep circulation up. But it still boasts some of the best sports writing talent around and has 3 million subscribers and is read by over 23 million people every week. And if anyone at SI wants to do a feature on this podcast, feel free to shoot me an email. The magazine's best-selling edition every year is still its swimsuit issue, which was first published in 1964. Some of the world's most famous supermodels have been featured in its pages and covers, like Cheryl Teagues, Christy Brinkley, Polina Poroskova, Kathy Ireland, Elle McPherson, Heidi Klum, Tyra Banks, Chrissy Teigen, and Kate Upton, just to name a small few. The models seem to wear less and less every year, to the point where sometimes the actual swimsuits can be difficult to spot. And like its parent magazine, the swimsuit issue's purpose in these modern times seems questionable at best, and misogynistic at worst. So uh, what does the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue have to do with the Golden Girls? No, they never did a spread or appeared on the cover, although a joke about it did come up in Season 4's Stan Takes a Wife, written by Winifred Hervey. Sophia hasn't been feeling well, and a simple question from Dorothy opens the door for a zinger. Feeling any better, are you? I'm fine, thank you. But you look terrible. 
Gee, I guess I won't be making in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue this year like the rest of you. About a year ago, my wife saw a shirt on Facebook that had a picture of Herb Edelman's large bald head and the words, It's me, Stan, written below it. I said it was cool, knowing that it was pretty rare among the already short options for Golden Girls apparel. A few weeks later, for our anniversary, she gave me that very shirt, having ordered it right after showing me. I'm not sure how many people have ever noticed who it is, but those that have know it fits me to a T. Some actors excel at playing jerks that are still somehow likable. Paul Newman was the all-time master at this. Fast Eddie Felsen, Hud Bannon, Reggie Dunlop, they aren't anti-heroes so much as they're just straight-up assholes. But either because of Newman's confidence or his energy or his smile, we still like them. Herb Edelman's Stan's Bornack fits right into that same category. You knew every time he showed up at the house that the girls' lives were about to get screwed up. It might have been for a money-making scheme or just a free meal, but Stan always meant bad news. And yet, that big goofy lug was always a welcome presence for us at home, and a consistent source of laughs on a show that was already an all-star team of comedians. Herb Edelman never had to be a lead actor. Once you saw him once, you never forgot him. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we finally take the floor with the show's basketball jokes. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.